The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Russia probe closes in on Trump. It's Thursday, January 11th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The President of the United States gets his first official annual physical exam tomorrow at Walter Reed Hospital. It's customary, but not required. Since about the start of the 20th century, presidents have been examined by military doctors to assure that they are physically fit enough to carry out their duties. The Army doctor examining Trump tomorrow will let us know what he finds. Although he's often bragged about his health, his energy, and his stamina, Trump is the oldest person ever to be elected at age 71. He's known for his love of ice cream, Big Macs, and KFC, doesn't exercise, and appears to be clinically obese. Trump's personal doctor told us during the campaign that Trump is the healthiest individual to ever be elected president. Dr. Harold Bornstein also told us Trump's mental health is especially excellent. Quoting Trump's private physician, his brain is turned on 24 hours a day. Unfortunately, the president's mental health will not be examined tomorrow, despite the even greater importance of that. Citizens, voters, and taxpayers have a right to know if the person in that crucial job is physically and mentally well enough to do it. If the author of Fire and Fury is to be believed, there's been persistent talk about the 25th Amendment inside the Trump White House. The 25th Amendment allows for the removal of a president who is unfit to carry out their duties. The book was an instant bestseller read by millions over the weekend. And although it isn't mentioned in the book, the 25th Amendment did come up during an interview with the author. Michael Wolff says that during his time in the People's House, the amendment was mentioned, quote, all the time. He says the statements included, we're not at a 25th Amendment level yet. The book also quotes top White House staffers describing Trump as crazy, stupid, uninformed, immature, lacking any semblance of attention span, and childlike. They also apparently use the words idiot and moron. The book has former top advisor Steve Bannon saying Trump, quote, has lost it. Wolf says 100% of the advisors and family members who make up Trump's inner circle believe he's, quoting here, incapable of functioning in his job. There is no way to confirm Wolf's claims. White House spokeswoman Sarah Sanders calls the book complete fantasy, and Trump calls it a fake book. And as extremely unlikely as using the 25th Amendment is, the subject is alive and well on social media, fueled by Trump's reaction to the book. In a flurry of I'm not crazy tweets Saturday morning, Trump declared he's, quote, a very stable genius. Throughout my life, tweeted Trump, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. He ranted again about fake news and reminded us of his life as a, quote, top TV star. Questions about the president's mental state had been raised even before that interview, even before the book, which quoted White House insiders as saying Trump repeats himself constantly, apparently not remembering covered ground. Wolf says Trump seemed unable to have a real conversation, that it was never a normal back and forth with him, his eyes darting around the room. Trump says Ronald Reagan had to deal with similar accusations and handle them. Trump says he'll handle them, too. But the book that's been his obsession this week isn't the only reason for concern about the mental health of the president. Before that, there was his rambling New Year's interview with the New York Times in which he made a series of statements based on something other than reality. In recent days, Trump's called for the jailing of his political rivals and threatened North Korea with annihilation. And then there are those tweets. He with the bigger button taunting an apparent nuclear power. A clinical professor at Yale School of Medicine says she met with a dozen members of Congress last month to tell them that she and more than two dozen other psychiatrists are worried about Trump's behavior. The danger has become eminent, she says. The professor who studies the prediction and prevention of violence points to Trump's verbal aggression, his brags about sexual assault, and his inciting of violence at his rallies. She cites Trump's attraction to dictators and nuclear weapons. These signs, she says, are not just signs of danger, but of the kind of violence that could put an end to life as we know it. Bandy Lee says all but one of the dozen lawmakers she briefed were Democrats. Under their own code of ethics, psychiatrists are not supposed to analyze the mental health of public officials publicly. But Lee says she and others feel they have a duty to inform, adding, We're concerned about the public health risk posed by his mental instability. 
We're not concerned about him as a person, says Lee. We are concerned about his being in the office of the presidency. He will grow worse, she says. A former national security advisor to both Presidents Bush agrees with the shrink, saying it raises the question about whether the president has the judgment and discipline that are commensurate with that power. Trump, the White House, and Trump supporters aren't buying any of this. But tens of millions of Americans are. At the end of last week, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham sent a letter to the Justice Department asking that former British spy Christopher Steele be criminally investigated for supposedly lying to the FBI about the dossier he wrote on Trump's relationship with Russia. In other words, Grassley and Graham wanted to investigate not the crime, but the person who reported the crime. And they did this without checking with or even informing any of the other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Graham and Grassley did this unilaterally in another attempt to discredit a document they claim started the FBI investigation. They say they referred Steele for criminal charges based on what they'd heard in testimony by the man who hired Christopher Steele. But Grassley and Graham were at the same time refusing to release the transcript of that testimony so the rest of us could see what they were seeing They refused to release it even though it wasn't classified, even though it had already been redacted for public release, and despite the urging of Steele's employers to put it out there. And oddly, Graham and Grassley were telling the FBI things it already knows. Legal experts say it appears to have been a political stunt. At the very least, it was an attempt to divert attention from the crime to the man who'd reported the crime. By Tuesday of this week, both Graham and Grassley were made out to be liars by another member of their committee who decided to also act on her own. Ranking Democrat Dianne Feinstein released to the public the transcript of testimony by Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson, who had hired Steele to find what he could about Trump's business with Russia. Feinstein did this unilaterally, without notifying or consulting any other members of her committee. She accused Republicans of trying to undermine the dossier that also includes extremely embarrassing personal findings. The only way to set the record straight, said Feinstein, is to make the transcript public. In so doing, she gave Graham and Grassley a taste of their own medicine, proved them to be liars, and proved wrong all of their theories about the Steele dossier. Republicans have claimed that Fusion GPS and subcontractor Christopher Steele had been hired by the Clinton campaign. And although that was ultimately true, the Clinton camp never used anything from the dossier. And equally true, this opposition research on Trump had first been commissioned by a right-wing news outlet, the Washington Free Beacon. Republicans have claimed the Steele dossier was the basis for the FBI investigation into Trump-Russia. And that has now been disproven. We now know the FBI actually launched its probe based on a tip from an Australian diplomat who'd heard an intoxicated Trump campaign aide say Russians had some dirt on Clinton. That aide is now cooperating with the investigation, having already pled guilty to a federal felony. The newly released testimony from Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson reveals that the FBI was investigating Trump even before Fusion GPS, even before Christopher Steele. In a major revelation from that transcript of Simpson's testimony, we learned the FBI already had an undercover agent inside the Trump campaign before Steele came along. The testimony also revealed more about Trump's connections with mobsters, Italian and Russian. Simpson testified he knew Trump was lying when Trump claimed he didn't know Felix Sater, who's connected with organized crime in Russia. Simpson knew Trump had lied under oath when Trump testified he wouldn't know Felix Sater if he ran into him on the street. Quoting Simpson, that was not true. He knew him well and, in fact, continued to associate with him long after he learned of Felix's organized crime ties. So, you know, that tells you something about somebody. End quote. The testimony also told us something about Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele. It was Steele who, believing he was witnessing a crime in progress, reported what he had found to the FBI, only to learn that they had already gathered some of that same information. It was Steele who told the FBI he was afraid Trump might be a target of Russian blackmail, especially because of the salacious stuff he'd found. Simpson says Steele thought someone in the U.S. government ought to know. Turns out they already did have some idea, but thanks to a tip from a friendly foreign government, not from the Steele dossier. Republicans have argued the dossier, which is really a first draft, isn't credible, partly because it has a typo and misidentifies the location of one meeting. 
But to date, a year after it was first published, absolutely nothing in the dossier has been disproven, and a number of things have been substantiated. Simpson's testimony reveals the credentials of the people involved in his research on Trump and how they learned where to look. Simpson's testimony makes clear that the research by him, Christopher Steele, and others was done without bias, that it had started simply as a search for information on Trump's finances, and that that search led them to Russia. And Simpson's testimony also revealed why Steele and Fusion GPS won't reveal their sources. Quoting Simpson, somebody's already been killed as a result of the publication of this dossier. People who get in the way of the Russians tend to get hurt, he said. The dossier also claims that Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, had, like Trump, connections with sketchy Russians. Cohen is now suing Fusion GPS for defamation of character. Cohen's also suing BuzzFeed, which was the first to publish the dossier one year ago this week. Cohen's name comes up more than a dozen times in the dossier, but he says that's because of his proximity to Trump, not because he's done anything wrong. Cohen says it will be proven he had no involvement in collusion, but that his good name has been damaged by this now very public dossier. If Russia had dirt on Trump and or it helped him get elected, then what did Russia expect in return? The answer might have come from the Trump administration itself, which tried to eliminate some of the sanctions placed against Russia for its invasion of Crimea and its interference in the U.S. election. And in the earliest days of this presidency, one of Trump's national security advisors proposed withdrawing American troops from Eastern Europe as a goodwill gesture to Vladimir Putin even after the Russian attack on our election and in spite of the U.S. sanctions against Russia for that and for invading Ukraine, this advisor was pushing the idea of an olive branch. This national security advisor, a senior aide to Trump, has no military or government experience and was brought on board by Mike Flynn, who's pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. And although Flynn is now long gone, Kevin Harrington, the guy who proposed this overture to Russia, is still on the National Security Council. The question is, will Harrington still be there when Flynn's successor is also gone? CNN reports that H.R. McMaster, the National Security Chief who replaced Mike Flynn, may now also be out the door. McMaster and Trump have clashed repeatedly, especially over policies on Afghanistan and Iran. McMaster lasted only 10 months. Mike Flynn lasted 24 days in that same job. Also expected to depart, White House counsel Don McGahn, who's also been the target of Trump's scorn. The White House denies CNN's report that White House staffers who want to leave should do so by the end of this month. And there will be others, with just a week left in Trump's first year, as Chief of Staff John Kelly scrambles to fill all the openings, and there are many. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow show has listed record-setting three dozen departures so far in just the first year of the Trump presidency. Russia's interference with Democratic elections continues across Europe, according to a new report from Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who note that the current president has offered no strategy to protect the U.S. from again falling victim to Russian meddling. This is the first congressional report that details the Russian efforts here in 2016, and it makes multiple suggestions about what Trump could do if he would. Quoting Maryland's Ben Cardin, never before has a U.S. president so clearly ignored such a grave and growing threat. It was a former friend and former Trump political strategist Steve Bannon who allowed a former USA Today columnist named Michael Wolff nearly unfettered access to the White House for months on end. And Steve Bannon is paying for that decision. It may have ended his life in politics. Bannon hadn't just let in a reporter who wrote a tell-all book called Fire and Fury. He had told that reporter that Trump has lost it and that the president's son was treasonous. The perception that Bannon has turned on Trump has already cost Bannon dearly. The wealthy Mercer family, upon which Bannon was counting to financially back his Republican revolution, now says Bannon won't get another dime. And since the Mercers are big financial backers of the fake news website Breitbart, they've forced Bannon out of that organization, which means he's also losing his daily radio show. That's the injury. The insult is the loss of support from the man who once heaped praise on Bannon, now calling him Sloppy Steve and telling the world Bannon cried when he was fired. The loss of someone who'd once said, I like Steve Bannon, he's a friend of mine. Donald Trump had even defended Bannon when the news came out about allegations of domestic abuse against Bannon's wife. 
While others around Trump thought it was time to cut the cord with Bannon, the candidate hung in and tried to lighten the mood by referring to Bannon as Bam Bam. Don't worry about Bam Bam, he reportedly told worried staffers about the accused wife beater. Those days are over. Bannon is now despised by Trump and Trump backers. The money for Bannon has dried up. Bannon's political future appears to have evaporated. He had grand plans that included overturning the Republican establishment. Unlike Trump and company, Bannon has not tried to distance himself from the book, although he claims his remark about treason was not about the president's son, but instead about the president's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, as if that were somehow better. Your day of reckoning is coming, was Bannon's warning to moderate Republicans when he campaigned for Roy Moore in Alabama. But it appears Bannon's day of reckoning has come first. Bannon remains committed to his goals and a belief that comebacks are his specialty. He still says the Russia investigation is a witch hunt. And in case it's not too late, Bannon says the president's son is, quote, both a patriot and a great man. But Fire and Fury author Michael Wolff isn't backing down. With gratitude to Bannon for the chance to see the inner White House, Wolf says Bannon was talking about Don Jr. and not Paul Manafort. I don't want to put him in more hot water than he's already in, said Wolf, but it was not directed at Manafort. It was directed directly at Don Jr. Wolf had in the book quoted Bannon as saying, they're going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. At the time, Bannon was talking about that meeting with Russians in Trump Tower late in the campaign to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Also present at that meeting were Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and then-campaign manager Paul Manafort, but it was Don Jr. who eagerly accepted the invitation with the words, I love it. Donald Trump didn't know Steve Bannon quite as well as he thought he did. Trump didn't know that Bannon had been working against him. CNN reports that right before Trump and Bannon hooked up, a conservative group backed by Bannon had been working to sink Trump's bid for the White House. In the early stages of the Republican primary campaign, the so-called Government Accountability Institute, co-founded by Bannon, had gathered dirt on Trump about his business ties to organized crime. Intriguingly, that institute gets money from the aforementioned Mercer family, or it did, which at the time had joined Bannon in backing Ted Cruz just as the Cruz campaign was posting news stories linking Trump to the mob. Still, Bannon made his way into the Trump campaign and into the Trump White House, only to then let word get out that he had called the Trump Tower meeting with Don Jr. and others treasonous. Those are comments Bannon now says he regrets. It was, by the way, the revelation of that meeting and Trump's plan for damage control that led Mark Carallo to quit the president's legal team. Trump advisors say Carallo didn't quit, he was fired. Either way, it's why Mark Carallo isn't a White House lawyer anymore, because he says he watched as Trump, Trump's daughter, Trump's son-in-law, and Trump's communications director, Hope Hicks, agreed to claim that the Trump Tower meeting was about adoptions, not dirt on Hillary Clinton. Carallo said such a story would represent, quote, a likely obstruction of justice. And obstruction of justice, including obstruction by the president, is clearly a focus of the Mueller investigation. And the evidence for that is mounting. The New York Times reports Trump ordered the top White House lawyer, Don McGahn, to try to get Jeff Sessions to resign, and that McGahn did as he was told. Removing the attorney general who'd recused himself from the Russia probe would allow Trump to install someone who could oversee the investigation and fire Bob Mueller. But Sessions refused to go. And Trump reportedly exploded with anger upon learning that the top White House lawyer had failed in his mission. That's when Trump reportedly said he expected his attorney general to protect him, the way he believes Bobby Kennedy protected JFK, the way he believes Eric Holder protected Obama. It is not part of the job description. And the New York Times says Mueller knows all of this as he investigates not just the apparent collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, but also investigates obstruction of justice as well. Mueller also knows Trump admitted to Lester Holt that he had fired FBI Director James Comey because of the Russia probe and that Trump had, before that, asked former Chief of Staff Reince Priebus to get Comey to publicly clear Trump's name. Comey refused to do any of that. He refused to agree to drop the Mike Flynn investigation, and he refused to take an oath of loyalty to Trump. And then he was fired. Trump's lawyers are reportedly preparing for the day they will be asked by Mueller to make him available for an interview. 
NBC News says Trump's lawyers are talking about possible formats for the interview, written responses perhaps instead of more off-the-cuff answers. They reportedly asked if Mr. Mueller would do the questioning or would it be one or more of his people. They've reportedly talked about where the interview might take place, how long it might last, and whether the topics might be limited. They've even reportedly asked if it's even legal to interview a president in such an investigation and whether there's any way to avoid it. They wanted to know if maybe Trump could just sign an affidavit swearing at risk of perjury that he was innocent of any wrongdoing, including collusion. NBC News says Trump's lawyers met with Mueller's team about these questions just before Christmas. Neither team of lawyers will comment, but veterans of the Justice Department say Mueller will want to interview the president directly. Quoting one, prosecutors want to see and hear folks in person. Body language and tone are important. They want answers from witnesses, not from their lawyers. A White House source says Mueller's interview of Trump is expected within the next few weeks, although Trump continues to be cagey about whether he'll cooperate. Earlier, he said he was 100% willing to be interviewed. Now... We'll see what happens, he said yesterday after saying it seemed unlikely he'd even be interviewed by Mueller, but that he would be willing to talk to Mueller's investigators about what he again called a democratic hoax, phony, and a witch hunt. Crossing his arms, he repeated his insistence there was no collusion. Repeating himself as he does, he said it eight times in nine minutes. And yet, said Trump, on and on it goes. Republicans caught lying about the Steele dossier. More big breaks for big oil. A comment from Bob Seska. A new crackdown on weed and a lot more after this. I'm once again asking you to do as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page. You get the same great prices as always. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important. You go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, and bookmark the page that it takes you to to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're just shopping Amazon, using and bookmarking that link delivers a small commission to this podcast. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less if you're a Prime member. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. Please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. And if Amazon is not right for you... You can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. As if Republicans don't face enough trouble in this year's election, they continue to stand by their Trump. And when push came to shove, the leader of the Republicans in Congress, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, stood not by the FBI or the Justice Department. Instead, Paul Ryan this week stood by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, who has ferociously and sometimes comically tried to discredit the Russia investigation. Over the summer, Nunes conducted his own investigation, even while he had been forced to recuse himself from the committee's probe of Trump-Russia. Nunes went after the Steele dossier, demanding to know if it was funded in any way by the FBI and whether the Bureau had used that dossier to get some of its warrants for surveillance. Eventually, Nunes used his subpoena powers to demand that the Justice Department and the FBI show him everything they had, including the witnesses and including classified documents. Law enforcement hedged at this, but the agencies cooperated where they felt they could without jeopardizing the Russia investigation. But Nunes still wasn't satisfied, and he threatened the top leaders of those agencies with contempt of Congress charges. So... Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein grabbed FBI Director Christopher Wray and headed for the office of House Speaker Paul Ryan to find out where Ryan stood, either with the seasoned law enforcement officials or Devin Nunes. Let the record show that Ryan stood with Nunes, and the FBI and the Justice Department have caved to their demands, agreeing to let Nunes see the documents in a secure facility, provided the documents remain in that facility. The Republican leaders in Congress have spoken. They back Trump even now. They're with him. Republicans are in a tough spot going into this year's midterm elections. Their leader is still the top story in the news, but not in a good way. Trump's approval rating is abysmal. His only legislative accomplishment, the tax bill, is as unpopular as he is. Democrats, meanwhile, have been winning elections and in key states. Historically, Voters unhappy with their president usually turn against his party in midterm elections, like the one that's now just months away. 
Republicans in Congress have so far ignored the jaw-dropping stories from the Russia probe, or they've downplayed them. Some have even taken to attacking the investigation and anyone remotely connected to it. But their attacks have boomeranged, in the end doing more damage to the Republicans and actually helping the Trump-Russia investigation as they have in the case of the Steele dossier. Do I hear three? For the second time in two days, a Republican congressman has announced he won't run for re-election. On Monday, California's Ed Royce announced he's leaving after 25 years in the House, so Republicans no longer have an incumbent for that district, which went heavily for Clinton to make things tougher. And it will be easier for Democrats to also take over another California seat in the House, that of 15-year veteran Daryl Issa. They join over two dozen other Republicans in not sticking around for this year's midterms. 30 Republican seats are up for grabs this year, and Democrats need to win at least two dozen of those to take control of the House in order to, among other things, launch an impeachment of Donald Trump. Republicans in North Carolina gerrymandered their state's political district maps in a way that illegally and unfairly favors Republican candidates over Democrats. That is the finding of a panel of federal judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals. Partisan gerrymandering, said the court, runs contrary to numerous fundamental Democratic principles and individual rights. Republicans currently control 10 of the 13 North Carolina seats in Congress. In terms of size, it's in the top 10 among all states, North Carolina's delegation. Republican-controlled states across the country have also been accused of juggling their voting maps to favor their Republican candidates. Trump says there's been a phony cloud over the White House for 11 months. Salon.com's Bob Seska also spotted a dark cloud over Trump Tower this week. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. Not to overstate the obvious symbolism, but Trump Tower in New York City was literally on fire this week. Without a doubt, it was an inadvertent yet appropriate metaphor for the critical condition of the Trump White House at this point. The president not only spent the weekend confirming the key takeaways from Michael Wolff's explosive new book by behaving like a spastic, petulant dickhead on Twitter, but then the White House announced that Trump would be spending even more time every day yelling at the TV. This is coupled with Stephen Miller's meltdown on CNN and word that Trump tried to block Jeff Sessions from recusing himself in the Russia investigation. Adding to the growing menu of bad things, we learned Monday morning via NBC News that Trump's lawyers are negotiating with the Office of the Special Counsel to finally get Trump on the record about his links to the various aspects of the Russian attack on our democracy, say nothing of the transcript that was released of the Fusion GPS testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So if it actually happens, I'd wager this is the news we've been waiting for on the Trump-Russia front for some time now. Finally, Mueller has gotten around to interviewing Trump, which means the OSC's purview has expanded to include the Oval Office. Now we know Mueller isn't simply pursuing Trump's weirdly sycophantic posse, the He-Man Woman Haters Club inside the White House. But before we get too excited, let's bear in mind Trump's talent for weaseling out of crap like this. For example, we learned last week that Trump will undergo a physical at Walter Reed by a military doctor. If it actually takes place, and I doubt it will, it's unlikely we'll know the actual results of the examination, given that Trump's obviously feeble mental and physical condition is kept well hidden through Trump's other nefarious talent for deception. Likewise, while it's likely he'll eventually have to face Mueller, it's possible the negotiated parameters for the meeting could allow Trump to skate around any real accountability. Biff is a world-class weasel, and we can rest assured knowing that his legal team, Sekolo, Dowd, and Cobb, will use all of their powers to shield Trump from as much jeopardy as possible. You might recall how, during the 9-11 Commission's investigation, President Bush was able to get away with answering questions without any recording devices, without any notes, without a transcript, and with Dick Cheney sitting shotgun the entire time. Later, Bush was interviewed by Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald about the leaking of CIA agent Valerie Plame's name as political retribution. Somehow, Bush was able to finagle it so that he wouldn't be interviewed under oath. It's safe to assume Trump and his legal team will attempt to keep the president as safe as possible, especially given his taste for obvious lying, gaslighting, and ludicrous embellishment. However, it's also possible that if Trump refuses to appear on terms favorable to the OSC, he could be compelled by subpoena to testify before the grand jury. 
In that case, we can probably expect him to perjure himself on top of the list of other potential charges that include obstruction, conspiracy, and money laundering. However, there's one thing we should bear in mind, and it's good news, so don't worry. We're talking about stupid Watergate here, so it's more likely than not Trump and his team of Gotham City henchmen will derp their way into deeper trouble. Upon arriving at just about every turning point, Trump has made things far worse for himself rather than better. Time and time again, he can't keep his yapper shut. He can't stop referencing the how-to manual for investigations and choosing to do the opposite of what it recommends. Inevitably, Trump will knee-jerk himself deeper in the quicksand pit of his own making. He can't help it. This is what he does. He makes shitty decisions, and the Mueller interview won't be any different. Trump Tower is on fire, and we can safely assume the president will try to put it out with a tanker of gasoline. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. When George W. Bush was president, he would land in the Oval Office at or before 6.45 in the morning. When Barack Obama was president, he'd roll in between 9 and 10 a.m. after his workout. Donald Trump skips the workout but still doesn't leave his residence quarters until about 11 to make the commute downstairs to the Oval Office. The current president of the United States doesn't spend as much time in that office as other presidents, and now not even as much as he did at first. On its daily schedule, the White House lists the first part of Trump's day as executive time, claiming he makes some important phone calls in that time in addition to watching Fox News and tweeting about what he sees there. Trump has disputed the New York Times report that he watches TV as much as eight hours a day. I don't get to watch much television, says Trump, adding, I'm reading documents. Twitter, by the way, has again made it clear it has no intention of shutting down the president's account, despite a mass of calls to do just that. Without mentioning Trump by name, Twitter issued a statement saying its purpose is to advance conversation, not stifle it. Quoting the statement, it would only silence that leader, but it would certainly hamper necessary discussion around their words and actions. Trump has 46 million followers on Twitter. He calls his use of social media modern-day presidential. It started after Oprah gave a stirring, inspirational speech at the Golden Globe Awards. Oprah 2020 started trending on Twitter after Ms. Winfrey gave the kind of speech we haven't heard in too long. The kind of speech that leaders give. It seemed to many of us watching she might be launching a bid for president, and many of us stopped to consider that. At the very least, it seemed she was testing the water and found it to be warm and inviting. Afterward, her longtime partner, Stedman Graham, told the L.A. Times that Winfrey would absolutely run, adding the tease, it's up to the people. Just last June, Winfrey told The Hollywood Reporter, I will never run for public office. That's a pretty definitive thing, she said. After her speech Sunday night, she was asked if she plans to run, which she answered by saying, I don't, I don't. But the next morning, CNN reported that Oprah was actively thinking about running, according to two of her friends who had been urging her to do so. One of them says Winfrey hasn't made up her mind. Running would mean giving up her spot on 60 Minutes, and electing her would mean that Americans were willing to give that job to another TV billionaire with no government or political experience. The Trump agenda, meanwhile, continues its breathtaking march. One new policy we learned this morning will let states deny health care to some adults unless they have jobs or do community service work. It's a major change for Medicaid that critics say goes against the very purpose of Medicaid. Ten Republican-led states have already asked if they can require certain adults to work for their health care. Kentucky has been so eager to do this the new rules may go into effect there as soon as tomorrow. Not so in Democratic states where it's believed that a person's health care is their right and not a luxury to be earned through work. Since we last met, this administration announced a plan to open up most U.S. territorial waters to oil exploration and extraction. It was another decision against the will of the people. It has certainly upset coastal governors east and west, left and right, it's upset state's attorneys general who started drawing up lawsuits. It's upset not only environmentalists, but the Pentagon as well. In addition to environmental and climate concerns, the Navy fears its ships in the region will be in greater danger with all these new obstructions in the water. 
parts of the Arctic that were protected are no longer under the plan from Trump's Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. Also unprotected now, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Gulf of Mexico. California is already making moves to keep the oil from coming to its shores. Every coastline state in America is fighting the new policy, including Republican states. One state, oddly, was exempted from the policy just days after it was announced. Republican Florida Governor Rick Scott got the administration to take offshore drilling off the table when it comes to Florida. It isn't clear why. Zinke says Florida gets a pass because of the recent hurricanes and some already existing pollution problems. But it's also a big election year in Florida with both a governor's race and senatorial votes. Governor Scott's time as governor is up and he plans to run for a Senate seat, which could be a challenge for him since environmentalists have given him terrible reviews in the past. More than seven years after the BP oil spill in the Gulf, petroleum hydrocarbons are still showing up in 90% of the pelican eggs a thousand miles away. Dolphins in the Gulf are still dying 8% sooner than dolphins elsewhere. Their birth rate is down by nearly two-thirds. The concerns of the other coastal states, meanwhile, are being ignored. The Trump administration has a history of ignoring objections, including those raised by a vast majority of Americans on the subject of net neutrality. The Republican Congress, meanwhile, is giving the big oil companies a big tax break. Another one. They've allowed the expiration of a tax on companies that collected a half billion dollars each year to fund the cleanup of oil spills. That fund had been seriously depleted because of the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf. Without that tax on oil companies, it would be left to the rest of us to pick up the cost of those cleanups. It's another big tax break for big oil, on top of the ones included in the recent Republican overhaul of our tax laws, in addition to those. Removal of the tax comes in the wake of other Republican moves, including cutting safety regulations for the oil industry and allowing more drilling along the nation's coastlines, except for Florida. One environmental group calls the Trump approach of drill baby drill a recipe for disaster. A deadly mudslide in California this week. Fire-blackened mud washed out by heavy rains cascaded down slopes in Southern California. It sounded like a freight train went at 4 o'clock in the morning. The mud, without warning, flowed like water, carrying with it boulders down hillsides now without trees to slow the flow. At least 17 people were killed, more than two dozen hurt, and another dozen or so still missing, just northwest of Los Angeles. Hope for finding the missing is dwindling, so the death toll is expected to go higher. The U.S. spent a record amount of money dealing with natural disasters in 2017, well over $300 billion. There were 16 weather disasters in the U.S. in 2017, the biggest, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. But there was also a drought, two floods, a wildfire, and about a dozen severe storms. It was also the third warmest of the last 123 years since we started keeping track. Quoting the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, this is part of a long-term warming trend. The average temperature in the U.S. was above what we once called average for the 21st consecutive year. And while the U.S. shivers through winter, it's summer down under. There, in Sydney, Australia, they're crushed by record heat. It was over 117 degrees there earlier this week, and with widespread power outages as a result, Air conditioning was hard to find. New York City is now suing the world's five biggest oil companies for contributing to and lying about global warming. The city's filed its suit in federal court and says it's working on withdrawing all of its oil company investments for its employees' pension funds. Named in the suit are BP, Chevron, Shell, ConocoPhillips, and ExxonMobil. The Trump administration suffered a setback this week when the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission rejected a plan put forth by Trump's Energy Secretary, Rick Perry. With government subsidies, Perry proposed propping up power plants that use coal or nuclear power ostensibly to make coal and nuclear more competitive in an energy market that's moved on to natural gas and alternative energy sources. Critics say Perry's plan would have meant higher rates for consumers and that it would have helped just two struggling companies, one of them in the coal mining business. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission said no, setting back the Trump goal of boosting coal production. Coal mining deaths, by the way, 
are up over the past year since Trump took office. And then there's Trump's big, beautiful border wall. This week, his administration revealed that the wall it wants to build would cost $18 billion, part of the $33 billion he wants for stepped-up border security. The $18 billion would be used over 10 years to build 722 miles of new wall and about that many miles of replacements for the walls and fences that already exist. So far, even Republican lawmakers have refused to entertain the idea of paying for such a project. Trump says he'd be willing to bring back the DACA program he killed if Democrats would vote for his wall. Democrats say that as much as they want that program restored, they will not approve money for the wall. On Tuesday, Trump met with Republicans and Democrats in the White House in front of TV cameras to discuss immigration issues, and that's when Trump surprised everyone by offering to give Democrats virtually everything they want for immigration reform including a path to citizenship. That won't set well with Trump supporters, many of whom voted for him because of his anti-immigrant views. Trump's offer caught his supporters off guard. It caught Republicans off guard, and it caught Democrats off guard. The offer came from a man whose campaign had demonized immigrants, calling them rapists and killers. Knowing his voters would be angry about a softer side, Trump said, I'll take the heat. I will take all the heat. My whole life has been heat, he said, adding, I like heat in a certain way. But after the meeting, Trump again added that the Democrats would get nothing if they didn't vote to pay for his wall. And then, Tuesday evening, that big meeting on TV with both parties and Trump's offer and his then walk back all seemed pointless. Because that night, after the big showy meeting, a federal judge in California put a freeze on Trump's order to end the DACA program. DACA stays for now. The judge used some of Trump's own tweets against him, once again, citing several, including one in which Trump argued that the Dreamers should be allowed to stay. In his nationwide injunction that keeps Obama's program for young Dreamers on the books, the judge said Trump's order reversing DACA was an arbitrary and capricious use of executive power. That's ironic, since that's what Republicans had said about Obama's original order. But unlike the Democrats, they could not get a judge to agree with them. The Trump administration is expected to appeal the judge's decision, perhaps trying to force the issue directly into the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court as the tussle over immigration and border security continues. The DACA program expires in the first week of March this year, and its money runs out a week from now. Democrats are scrambling to keep it alive while the fate of nearly a million people brought here as children hangs in the balance. In Tuesday's meeting, Trump told lawmakers from both parties that if they come up with a solution, he'll sign it. In fact, a California Democrat and a Texas Republican have been working together on a bipartisan bill that would address both border security and immigration reform. In the meantime, Trump's rounding them up and throwing them out. Federal immigration agents raided nearly 100 7-Eleven convenience stores across the country before sunup yesterday. They were there to arrest more than 20 undocumented workers and seize paperwork from the manager's office. 7-Eleven Corporate says it's up to each franchise to obey the law, and it says any that violate the law will lose their stores. Immigration officials say there will be many more major raids on big employers. The Trump administration also this week told 200,000 Salvadorans who came here after an earthquake they have 18 months now to get out of the U.S. After 18 months, they will be deported. Trump's Homeland Security Secretary says the temporary protection status granted to these 200,000 people will end a year and a half from now and 17 years after it was granted. 17 years to make a new home and a new life in the U.S., to buy homes and businesses and pay taxes, and now 18 months to get out. Only Congress can save them. Otherwise, it's back to El Salvador. In Arizona, meanwhile, convicted former Sheriff Joe Arpaio announced he's running for Senate in that state. And he's as anti-immigration as ever, saying in his announcement, if you're going to come across that border, you should be arrested and get the consequences. Arpaio says he's running to help Trump make America great again. Trump had pardoned Arpaio after he'd been convicted for defying the orders of a federal judge in handling undocumented immigrants. And then there's the Trump administration's approach to weed and the trend of legalizing it in more and more states. A multi-billion dollar industry and the people who love the product are on edge 
after Jeff Sessions' decision to let the feds crack down on marijuana, even where state laws say it's legal. Although Trump said during the campaign that states should do what they want on pot, Trump also loves anything that undoes the work of President Obama. In a constantly desperate attempt for Trump's approval, Sessions, who despises marijuana and its users, has cleared the way for federal prosecutors to enforce the federal law on weed, which most Americans consider archaic. Most Americans favor the legalization of marijuana, so the Trump administration is here again acting against the will of the people. And here again, the governors of legal weed states are angry at Trump for attacking a source of tax money their states have come to expect. Legal marijuana money is being spent by states on education, law enforcement, and even drug addiction. And again, you can expect even more lawsuits, especially if the feds start busting legal pot dealers and users in Alaska, California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, D.C., Washington State, and soon to join them, Maine. Nobody gets out of this clean. No matter how different the two major political parties in this country are, it's now all the same to more and more of us. The number of voters identifying as independents increased by an unusual 3% last year to 42%, about the highest it's ever been. It is now America's most popular political preference, independents. There are more independents than there are Republicans. There are more independents than there are Democrats. Nearly half of us now claim to be politically independent, 42%. It's the independent vote that swings elections. It's the independent vote that all candidates, except Trump, have courted on the campaign trail. And the popularity of both parties has hit an all-time low, although Republicans have taken the biggest hit in the past year. The swing from partisan to independent and back again is a biennial ritual. In a presidential election year, the number of independents usually goes down and then back up again in the following years. But in the years since 2005, the swing has gotten more dramatic, and the baseline popularity of both parties keeps falling. The number of people who identify themselves as Democrats has dropped to 29%, tying the party's all-time low in 2015. Voters who identify as Republicans have shrunk to 27%, within two points of that party's all-time low in 2013. With fewer than one in three Americans identifying with either party, candidates in both parties would do well this year, more than ever, to appeal to the biggest group of available voters, the independents. The state of New York is suing the federal government over the new Trump-publican tax law, calling it unfair and unconstitutional. Governor Andrew Cuomo says that law, quote, now uses New York and California as piggy banks to finance tax cuts for Republican states. He's talking about SALT, state and local taxes, S-A-L-T, the money we can deduct from our federal taxes because we used it to pay state and local taxes. Under the new law, that deduction is now capped at $10,000. That means much higher tax bills for the people in New York and suburban Westchester County because most of them pay over $10,000 a year in property taxes and as much as $15,000 a year. A law professor at Georgetown says the SALT deduction also pushes people out of eligibility for the standard deduction. Quoting Cuomo, Washington's launched an all-out attack on New York's economic future, adding, it's an economic civil war. Trump said recently that on his watch, the U.S. is, quote, creating job growth the likes of which our country has not seen in a very long time. And although job growth has so far not been what it was in the Obama years, job growth is still very strong. Another two million jobs were added to our economy in 2017. And although December was not quite up to what economists expected, it was still the 87th straight month of job growth. Unemployment remains at 4.1%, as good as any measurement we've seen in the last 17 years. And wages are up, but only by 2.5%, which is why so many Americans feel left out of the economic recovery. Even the Federal Reserve would like to see more people get more money to give the economy an additional boost. Usually, when the unemployment rate goes down, goes this low, wages go up. But that hasn't happened so far. That may be about to change. A new survey shows that a whopping 40% of the people who already have jobs say they'll be looking for a job this year. Employers will have to show them the money to keep a good employee. And although wage growth has been averaging around 2.2%, 2 
the tick upward to 2.5% could be a sign the recovery is about to spread. Companies, meanwhile, continue to rake in record profits and investors are making a killing in the stock market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average passed another landmark this week, crossing to more than 25,000 for the first time ever. NASDAQ and the S&P also broke records. The bubble continues to expand 4,000 points a month for 10 straight months now. It's good for your IRA for as long as it lasts. But 2017 was the best year for the market since 2013. The Dow grew by 25% last year, up every month for the first year in history. Low interest rates get most of the credit, according to a strategist at Schwab. But Trump's deregulation and tax cuts have boosted the confidence of both businesses and their investors. And although Trump likes to brag about that, stock market growth on his watch still trails the growth rates of Harry Truman, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Barack Obama. And the World Bank said Tuesday that 2018 should be a good year, but that complacency about that could lead to a market crash and a higher cost of living. The author of that World Bank report says the markets are proportionately about where they were before the devastating Wall Street crash of 1929. The report says this could be avoided if we work toward sharing the wealth and ending poverty. Back on the streets, Sears says it's closing another 39 stores, along with 64 more Kmarts, on top of the dozens of store closings the company announced last year. The liquidation sales start this weekend, with doors closing in March. Just two months ago, Sears said it was closing 18 stores and 45 Kmarts combined. The two cutbacks will close 57 Sears locations and 109 Kmarts. Sears has lost nearly $10.5 billion in the past six years. That's costing the U.S. tens of thousands of jobs. Even Macy's is feeling the brick-and-mortar pinch. It's in the midst of closing 11 stores, including the one in downtown Miami. And that's another 5,000 people unemployed. Macy's says it will announce more store closings soon. Unlike Sears, Macy's isn't losing money yet, but it's scrambling to avoid Sears' fate. Macy's has closed 124 of its stores in the past two years. North Korea says it will be there in South Korea for the Winter Olympic Games next month. The South had invited the North to send athletes and cheerleaders. North Korea accepted enthusiastically, offering to bring other performers, including taekwondo, along with its own reporters and photographers. The North also seems interested in the idea of the two countries' teams making a joint entrance at the Olympic Stadium. The South wants family reunions, Lunar New Year gatherings of family members separated by the Korean War of the early 1950s. It's an historic breakthrough in the midst of escalating tensions. The talks to make these things happen were the first talks between those two countries in over two years. This would be the first time in eight years that North Korea has taken part in the Winter Games. It never won a single gold medal in anything. The North boycotted the games in Seoul, South Korea in 1988 after talks broke down for the North and South to co-sponsor the Winter Games. The North killed 115 people in a terrorist attack for revenge by planting a bomb on a Korea Air passenger jet back then. So why did North Korea accept an invitation this year? Maybe to drive a wedge between South Korea and the United States that Kim Jong-un despises so much. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says he thinks this all means the campaign to isolate North Korea is working. In another Trump-aggravated world tension, the Palestinians' top negotiator says there will be no more peace talks with the U.S. until Trump reverses his decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem after acknowledging that disputed city as the capital of Israel. Ibuprofen could be bad for the testicles. Can blacks handle their weed and iguanas falling from trees in Florida in the third and final segment up next? And just in time for the new year is the best gift you didn't get. Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up to your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. 
and the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and a hundred hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller has a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three, and Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the price for this level of quality, guaranteed. And the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything sounds better on tweaked audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices because you listen here if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com and all my other great sponsors, as well as through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. In Alabama, they're investigating whether the fire was arson, the fire that destroyed the home of the woman who accused Roy Moore of sexual misconduct. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been raised for her and her family in a GoFundMe campaign launched by a Twitter executive. They've already raised more than enough for a new house. Across the country, police shot and killed nearly a thousand people last year, while police deaths hit a record low. 2017 was the third straight year in which police shot to death about a thousand people. But this year was up over last year's by two dozen deaths. The number of black males being killed, however, was down to nearly half what it was two years ago before Ferguson and all the rest. The number of unarmed people shot to death by police is also down by a third. In the more than two years since Ferguson, police have gotten more training and have gotten more careful on average. In Kansas, a Republican state lawmaker has repeated a myth from the Jim Crow era that blacks are genetically less able to handle marijuana than other races. Steve Alford was addressing an all-white crowd in Garden City, Kansas, when he was asked about legalizing and taxing weed in the Sunflower State. Go back to the 1930s, said Alford, when they outlawed all types of drugs. What was the reason, he asked rhetorically, answering himself, one of the reasons, I hate to say it, was that the African Americans, they were basically responding the worst off those drugs because of their character makeup, genetics, and all that, end quote. Alford was channeling the late founder of the now-defunct Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who was quoted as saying, Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. And there you have it. The Supreme Court is refusing to hear arguments against the Mississippi state law that allows private businesses and even state employees to deny services to members of the LGBT community. The law means a county clerk, for example, could get out of having to issue a marriage license to an LGBT couple or even people living together out of wedlock or anything else they feel goes against their religion. Businesses don't have to worry about being sued in Mississippi after discriminating against LGBTs. Gay rights advocates say they will try to get this back before the Supreme Court if they have to. Quoting the lawyer who defends the Mississippi law, good laws like Mississippi's protect freedom and harm no one. Health news. This year's flu epidemic has now spread to at least 46 of our 50 states, shutting down more than 40,000 people that we know of. Ambulance crews have stayed unusually busy and hospitals are reporting a shortage of IV fluids for dehydrated flu patients. Health experts say it's not too late to get vaccinated and that even if it's not effective in keeping you flu-free, it will ease the symptoms. The U.S. death rate for cancer is now down 26% over the past 26 years, according to the American Cancer Society. That's meant nearly two and a half million fewer cancer deaths, mostly among men, but nearly three quarters of a million women were saved as well. New cases of lung cancer were down 45% among men, down nearly 20% in women. Breast cancer deaths are down nearly 40%. Prostate cancer down 52%. Colorectal cancer has been cut by more than half. The American Cancer Society is predicting 1.7 million new cases of cancer this year, and well over 600,000 cancer deaths. A very good friend of mine succumbed to it last week, and another has called in a hospice team. The Big C remains the second leading cause of death in the U.S. A new study says the over-the-counter NSAID ibuprofen, also sold as Motrin and Advil, can affect the testicles in young men, and not in a good way. 
The damage could make them sterile, even impotent, in addition to deflating their sex drives. The hormone shift can cause depression and risk of heart attack and stroke increase. It's not unusual for high school football players to take large doses of ibuprofen after a sports injury, but to take those doses for a longer period of time could cause them to develop a hormonal condition that doesn't usually arrive until middle age if it arrives at all. Researchers say people need to remember these products are medications to be ingested carefully. And there are others besides ibuprofen, including opioids, antidepressants, and even the over-the-counter antacid known as Tagamet. The CDC is holding a public meeting in Washington next week to educate the public about what's being done to prepare us all for a nuclear attack and what we should do. Things like shelter in place indoors for at least 24 hours after the blast. The CDC's notice of the meeting says planning and preparation can lessen the devastating death and illness tolls. The notice also says nuclear detonation is unlikely. Is your Caesar salad trying to kill you? Health officials in the U.S. and Canada are looking to see if contaminated romaine lettuce has killed one person and sickened dozens of others. The victims were struck by E. coli infections, apparently after eating romaine. Consumer reports sounded the alarm, but the CDC says it doesn't yet have enough information to say whether Americans should avoid romaine. Even Consumer Reports isn't certain, but says stores should stop selling romaine. In Canada, which has been hit hardest by this E. coli outbreak, health officials are advising people to avoid the lettuce until they can find the exact source of the contamination. Passings and Passages the source of the flute solo in the esoteric hit Nights in White Satin has died. He also sang lead on Dear Diary. Ray Thomas, co-founder of the Moody Blues, died suddenly over the weekend at age 76. In the 1980s, Jerry Van Dyke was stealing the show on TV's coach. He died this week at his ranch in Arkansas. He was 86 and had been in declining health ever since a bad car crash a little over two years ago. Although he's been seen more recently on ABC's The Middle... His TV career dates back to the early 60s when he starred in a failed sitcom called My Mother, the Car. It's awards movie season, and one of the first ceremonies is the Golden Globes, which aired Sunday, nearly overshadowed by the buzz about an Oprah for President campaign. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri won for Best Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor in Sam Rockwell. Allison Janney won Best Supporting Actress for I, Tonya. Gary Oldman got Best Actor in a Drama for Darkest Hour. And Cerise Ronan won Best Actress in a Comedy. The Jumanji sequel was tops at the box office this past week with another $36 million. A close second was Insidious, The Last Key, at over $29 million. A close third was the latest Star Wars with another $24 million. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The Billy Earl Dade Middle School in Dallas is made up of nearly 900 students. But when it came time for the annual Breakfast with Dads, only about 150 men came forward. Billy Earl Dade Middle School has 900 students. It was clear many of the kids wouldn't have a dad available for that breakfast. So the school put out a call for about 50 volunteers, if it could find them. It got 600. Some of the men had never volunteered for anything, and the students were even more surprised than anyone. One of the men handed out neckties and taught students how to tie a good Windsor knot. Quoting the pastor who organized the breakfast, when a young person sees someone other than their teacher take interest in them, it inspires them. From the home office in Florida... When Sunshine State temperatures dipped under the 40-degree mark last week, the people got a warning from the Fish and Wildlife Commission, naturally. They wanted South Florida residents to know that iguanas would be falling from the trees. Iguanas turn stiff in cold weather, and the wildlife folks wanted the public to know they aren't actually dead when they fall. But iguanas aren't even supposed to be in Florida. They're an invasive species, along with the monkeys and the Burmese pythons and some of the other states' extra wild wildlife. State officials say the upside to iguanas falling out of trees is it's easier to find and capture them and um, euthanize them since they're not supposed to be here. A flight from London to Mumbai found itself without a pilot in the cockpit for a while. 
The Times of India reports the two Jet Airways pilots had gotten into a fight and that when the male co-pilot slapped the female commander, she burst into tears and stormed out of the cockpit. Aviation rules say one of the pilots can leave the cockpit if the other is controlling the plane. But the co-pilot who'd done the slapping left the controls, pursuing the captain to try to convince her to return to the cabin. And he did this more than once, which means the plane was, more than once, not being piloted. Quoting an aviation official in India, what if they'd been locked out of the cockpit? Both pilots have been fired, and the slap-happy male co-pilot has lost his license to fly. And finally, a flight to Hong Kong out of Chicago's O'Hare had to make an unscheduled stop in Alaska after a man smeared two of the lavatories with feces and stuffed his shirt into a toilet. Afterward, the man was cooperative and remained in his seat until he was removed in anchorage for psychiatric examination. The flight resumed once the plane could be cleaned. The FBI says they don't think it was terrorism. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.